Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news in China with our email newsletter, our app, and our website. And while you're there, check out the growing stable of podcasts in the Seneca Network too. SupChina offers uncensored reporting from and about China, and you can read about everything from media policy to the Me Too movement, from the trade war to China's ongoing draconian repression of Uyghurs in southern Xinjiang. We're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm coming to you today from the offices of the German Marshall Fund in Washington D.C. Joining me from the sylvan splendor of Goldcorn Holler in Nashville, Tennessee, is SubChina's editor in chief, Jeremy Goldcorn. Jeremy, greet the people, won't you? Hello, people. It's a pleasure to be back. Yeah, well, it's、uh, great to have you back, Jeremy. You've got a lot of allies, but but China doesn't, right?、Uh, China, in fact, if you if you think about it, it's only got one ally, and that would of course be. Pakistan, which is an Islamic republic with more than its fair share of problems,、uh, in spite of those problems, China has bet big on Pakistan. The China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, the CPEC, is one of the big showpieces, if not indeed the linchpin of the Belt and Road Initiative.、Uh, so, when there is political change in Pakistan, China pays very close attention, and there has been change with the electoral victory this summer of a party called the PTI, led by an ex-cricketer. Named Imran Khan, who has now been named by his party as prime minister. So, with us here today to talk about the all-weather friendship, the election of Imran Khan, and the future prospects for、uh, CPEC is Andrew Small, a senior transatlantic fellow with the Asia program of the German Marshall Fund in Washington D.C. And you know the Belt and Road often gets compared to the Marshall Fund, so it seems somehow very appropriate. Andrew has been a close observer of the China-Pakistan relationship and is the author of a book on the subject, The China-Pakistan Axis: Asia's New Geopolitics. Andrew Small, welcome to Sunica. Thanks very much for having me on.、Uh, yeah, and thanks for hosting me at your offices, Andrew.、Um, in your book,、uh, The China-Pakistan Axis, you open with a discussion of why the relationship between Beijing and Islamabad is such an important. An impactful one for the geopolitics of Asia. Can you summarize for our listeners some of the reasons why we need to understand that relationship? So there are reasons to try to understand it, looking out from the perspective of Chinese foreign policy, looking at Pakistan's future,、um, and then looking at the picture in the region as a whole. From the Chinese perspective, as Kaiser noted in in the introduction, Pakistan is really one of the few friends that that China has.、Um, although it's not technically a, a treaty ally、um, in the same way that the sort of slight embarrassment of the treaty relationship with North Korea has,、uh, it's really been. The most consistent friend that that China has over the decades, and it's a resilient friendship.、Um, it's one of the in a number of the other cases when you look around at the countries that are supposedly close to China.、Uh, in many ways, they're dependent on some particular government being in power.、Uh, they're often unpopular with the public. Still, when you look at opinion poll ratings, Pakistan is one of the places where it makes very little difference which government takes office, and China has extremely strong approval ratings, above eighty、uh, percent. 
the country, which when you look around the surveys of uh, public opinion in China and around the world is, is an extremely unusual case. Um, and so what it means is that you have for Chinese foreign policy, uh, an unusual friendship um, at a time when friends are starting to matter more uh, in the context of Chinese strategy as a whole. Friends matter um, as China looks to develop its power projection capabilities abroad in a way that during a kind of non-aligned, more narrowly economically centric foreign policy, in some respects, the relationship was was less important. But it's always been important in the region as well, because Pakistan and, and China's relationship has, has really been founded on their respective antipathy towards India and the benefit that the two sides can derive from coordinating their stances in the region. And again, as India's takeoff has, has taken place in, in the last couple of decades, uh, that started to have uh, even more strategic significance for the balance of power, not just in South Asia, but in Asia as a whole, with India as one of the other crucial uh, powers um, in the region. And for Pakistan, this phrase that you referred to, the all-weather friendship, is kind of counterposed to the supposed fair-weather friendship of the United States. Uh, China has been Pakistan's single reliable friend, partner, and backer over the decades, um, and in really consequential ways. It's China was the, the country that uniquely between two countries uh, provided uh, highly enriched ura- uranium, I think the only instance that one uh, nuclear power has ever provided um, highly enriched uranium to a non-nuclear power. It's been the vital backer of Pakistan's military capabilities and largest arms supplier. It's been its diplomatic protector. Um, and as I think we'll go on to talk about a little more uh, later today, it's started to be increasingly crucial to the economic future of uh, the country mm. through the China-Pakistan economic corridor. And Pakistan has been this kind of showcase. It's been, CPEC has been described as the um, flagship for the entire Belt and Road Initiative. Right. Um, so it's also significant to, to look at this relationship now as a case study for uh, the lessons that China is really looking to learn for the Belt and Road as a whole. And I, I think the success or failure of, of, of CPEC in economic terms is going to be instructive for looking at how China uh, deals with a number of other similar instances. Because in theory, if you can't deal with uh, some of the problems when you're making these investments in the country that's supposed to be your closest friend, I, I think the difficulties that you're going to see politically in so many other places are going to be even more uh, egregious. But Pakistan is also a very difficult case. We will also get on, I think, to talk about the, the, the Uyghur question. For a long time, Pakistan was the, the territory that hosted um, uh, Turkestan Islamic Party, the, 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 the group that I think has still been seen by China as the chief external terrorist uh, threat. There's a lot of suspicion in China about the direction that Pakistan has been taking in terms of militant influences. I, I think Pakistan is also a huge source of anxiety for China in terms of the spillover implications for Xinjiang, depending on how developments there go. So there's a lot of different elements of China's security future, power projection, the regional picture, all bound up in what happens in in this relationship. And I think the last few years since Xi Jinping's landmark visit have really placed a lot greater attention on on the relationship uh, internationally and and in Pakistan itself. China was always a kind of a background actor in in Pakistan, a sort of quiet uh, supporter, providing it with the equipment and capabilities that it needed. It wasn't an active factor in day-to-day politics. Um, with CPEC, it now very much is. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've made a very persuasive case as to why this is a very important bilateral relationship to understand in the study. Uh, how did you get interested in this particular relationship, and, and how did you equip yourself to study Sino-Pakistani relations in the first place? 
So the point at which I was particularly interested in in the relationship was was during the U.S. presidential elections in uh, 2008. Um, it became clearer and clearer that Afghanistan was going to feature uh, as an important issue in the bilateral U.S.-China relationship in a way that it, it really hadn't since the 1980s. And Afghanistan was an area uh, not only of potentially close cooperation between the United States and, and, and China, uh, but an, an area where the crux of the Afghanistan question is really Pakistan. It's, it's Pakistan that's hosted uh, the Taliban and other insurgent forces uh, for, for a long time since since, since they fled the U.S. invasion, and the Chinese special relationship with Pakistan seemed to provide an opportunity to take advantage of, of the leverage that China has in in, in the country to, uh, to to be able to help forge some sort of solution in Afghanistan. But despite the significance, I, I think, of, of the relationship, it was oddly understudied. And uh, when I was digging around books on the subject, you really had to go back to uh, the 70s, at best the early 80s, before you had any sort of comprehensive accounts of, of the relationship. And this seemed kind of an odd lacuna in, in studies of Chinese it foreign is. policy as a, as a whole. Um, and one of the reasons for this is it's just an incredibly opaque relationship, which, of course, spans kind of a dividing line in, in, in Asia, where a lot of the regional specialists in, in one area uh, don't, don't tend to spend as much time um, hopping over for the, the relatively modest, in theory, gap between East Asia and, and South Asia. Um, and if they do, they tend to spend the time on, on China and India. So uh, the, there was just a huge gap. Um, and although a lot of the material, there's, there's a lot of good material out there in, in, in other studies, in other books on uh, the nuclear relationship or on uh, Afghanistan, on militancy and these sorts of things, uh, I hadn't really seen a place where all of this had been stitched together and integrated in a way that could help people really make sense of, of the relationship. And I, I think for, I mean, I was looking at it initially from a from a U.S. policy perspective in in particular and, and how it might matter in the U.S.-China relationship. But it, the significance of, of the subject has, has only uh, risen since, since that point. Mm. Um, but working on the subject as a result of the opacity of, of the relationship on both sides, because, I mean, this is also an odd relationship for China in that I, I think it's pretty much the only foreign policy relationship that's largely handled by the PLA. Um, Andrew, and I, I, can I ask you about its very oddness? I, I'd like you to talk about mm. that, the, the PLA aspect to it. But the other thing is that they really are an odd couple. I mean, the one country is an Islamic republic. Um, the other is a secular, nominally communist technocracy, which appears uh, hell-bent on eliminating Muslim culture from uh, its area. So what are the real foundations of the relationship? You know, is there more to it than their share, shared concerns about India? So India provided the foundations for the relationship, certainly. If you take India out of the equation and that kind of structural driver for the relationship, it, it's hard to see the two sides coming together. Of course, Pakistan was also US allied, a member of anti-Chinese alliances, essentially, in the early stages of the Cold War as, as well. There was, there was no particularly intrinsic reason beyond India uh, for the two sides to come together as they uh, did ultimately in the largely in the in the 1960s but i think india's provided a kind of strategic glue for the two sides which has manifested itself in this uh, deep 
security cooperation that has involved some of the most sensitive military transfers that China's been willing to make. And as a result of that, I think it's it's helped build a broader level of trust between the two countries. And I think that matters. They, the two sides know that they can count on each other in, in a number of important aspects. And of course, Pakistan played a role in brokering the, the US-China relationship, diplomatic opening in the first place, brokered China's relations with Saudi Arabia, with the Taliban. It hands over US technology whenever it can get its hands on them. Um, and this is a relationship where I think one uh, US observer claimed that the uh, the ISI and the PLA named their children after each other. Um, <laughs> this, this, is, this is close. And I think although India has been underpinning that, and although India is still a central element of the relationship, even if, again, it's kind of in the background, they don't necessarily spend their time talking about the issue, the long established trust that's been built up between the two sides on these strategic issues. Um, and as you, you, you say in the, your framing of this, this has been a security driven relationship. Questions of cultural affinity are not there. Mm. No one knows each other's languages. No one spends time in each other's countries. Until very recently, no one aspired to send their children to universities in China if they were in Pakistan, certainly not vice versa. Um, this has not been driven by some kind of affinity in, in any other way. It's it's been a security-rooted relationship. And what the two sides are in some respects attempting to do now with CPEC and some other associated initiatives is to fill that out beyond the incredibly narrow sliver of officials, army officers, and senior politicians who've kind of handled the relationship on these very uh, sensitive areas over the previous few decades. So without going into a whole history of the relationship, maybe we can talk about this and uh, maybe look at the 70-odd years since partition and point out some of the inflection points and see if they correspond really to, uh, as you suggest, to flare-ups perhaps between India and China or between India and Pakistan. Yes, so, I mean, I, I think the, the early flare-ups can all be put down to wars. I think the, the, the sure. early markers in the relationship are, are really uh, various wars that take place in the region. In the 50s, of course, the China-India relationship is, is much closer. This is the kind of high point of China-India relations. But then... Bandung... Uh, well, and uh, Bandung and, and the kind of shared leadership of the developing world, India sticks up for China in the UN. I mean, there are, there are all a whole host of different things that, that play out during this period of time. And again, Pakistan is the US allied country. Right. China, China through that stretch is Soviet allied and India is in some respects somewhat left sympathetic, uh, can at least be described as that. And you have a breaking point, of course, in the Sino-Indian relationship in as the late 1950s bleed into the war of, of 62, the Dalai Lama, the crackdown in, in Tibet, all of these sorts of things that play out. And 62 is the kind of initial critical inflection point. Uh, before that point, Pakistan and uh, China can't resolve boundary issues. Pakistan is still talking to India about whether the two sides might show a common front against their mutual concerns mm. in, in, in Chinese presence coming from the north and things. 62 is, is a really critical catalyst. Although the two sides keep decent relations in the 50s, 62, as the China-India war plays out, the two sides settle their border dispute very quickly, and the relationship starts to be put on a very different floor. Uh, 65 is then the point in which China is first kind of seen as Pakistan's potential savior. The Pakistan-India war of, of, of 65, uh, China makes all sorts of blood-curdling threats mm. on Pakistan's behalf, stands up for it on, on Kashmir. Um, and although in practice, uh, China does not intervene on, on Pakistan's behalf, uh, you have this famous secret trip that Ayub Khan 
takes to Beijing, where he he meets uh, Zhou Enlai and, and and others, and and they promise assistance to the Pakistanis, but say you need to be willing to retreat to the hills, lose a few cities, but we will back you all the way. Um, and I mean, there it, it, it's still a, a view on the Chinese side that's rooted in the long march, a long struggle, and all of these things. And the Pakistani army is has a fundamentally different approach to these things. And he says to Zhou Enlai, Mr. Premier, I, I think you're being rash and goes back without Chinese support, sues for peace. Um, But the popular myth of the time, this is the point in which the all-weather friendship is established. The US effectively deserts Pakistan, cuts off military support. China provides secret arms sales um, and provides very public backing. And then the the final kind of hinge point, I think, though, in these early years is the 71 war between Pakistan and India, where Pakistan is effectively uh, dismembered. Yes, um, uh, Bangladesh is is established. And this is the point in which there is almost no prospect of China intervening on, on Pakistan's behalf. There are great hopes on Pakistan's part. And interestingly, there are great hopes on the US part because this is all playing out of course during all of the Kissinger visits and and, and exchanges with the Chinese in New York and it's this period in which the, the Nixon administration is, is effectively supporting uh, Pakistan the Indians have a kind of quasi uh, alliance with the Soviet Union at the time. China is, has, of course, gone through some of its kind of greatest internal crises with the Limbiao case and, and is extremely concerned about the repercussions of potential conflict with the Soviet Union. And from this point on, I think Pakistan also loses hope that China is really going to be a reliable military supporter in actual conflicts. What you have from 71 on is China says that it will provide Pakistan with the capabilities that it needs, but it will stay out of any of these kind of live conflicts, particularly given kind of the adventurism that we you see on Pakistan's part and have done for several decades and the willingness to take risks in conflicts with India that China is extremely uncomfortable about. So what you have from 71 on is essentially China provides the arms that Pakistan needs, including and most crucially, and then this is the other kind of crucial, I think, period in the relationship when China provides Highly support to Pakistan. Well, a whole series of different elements to the Pakistani nuclear program. Um, The nuclear program and the missile program. Pakistan has no indigenous missile program. It at least had some degree of an indigenous uh, nuclear program. When it was falling behind, the Chinese would swing in to help. And when was most of this uh, proliferation actually happening? So the crucial phase on the the nuclear side is really the early 80s. Um, That's when the most important Chinese support is provided. Um, And we know a lot more about this now, of course, because of the AQ Khan network unraveling. In Libya, they find the document that AQ Khan handed over, which have kind of Chinese characters written out on the instructions right. for bomb construction and all, all of these sorts of things. And we, I think we have a closer picture now of the level of immersion that the Chinese had in the Pakistani program, parts provided, scientists involved. On, and then on the missile side, that's largely the late 80s, early 90s. And that means that Pakistan essentially has the mechanisms that it, it needs to deliver the, the bomb effectively at, at critical targets in India, um, with a little bit of help from the North Koreans as well. And once that's in place, in a certain sense, some of these questions that were there before about will China swing in, will China intervene, become more academic. An escalation of the conflict between Pakistan and and India after a certain point no longer involves a China question, it involves a, a nuclear question.
question. Right. And that's kind of where we stand today, I suppose. Um, yes, it is. Could you bring us up to date on, on the election? Can you tell us about Imran Khan? To what extent was the relationship with China an issue? Because I believe he campaigned at times on a, a you know, an anti, so-called anti-China platform. So what, what, what is the domestic situation in Pakistan? In, what's going on in Islamabad? So China has had a funny relationship with Imran Khan's party, the the PTI, and with Imran Khan himself. They've been cultivating him for a long time. He's he's paid trips to Beijing. The uh, a number of the leading figures in the PTI um, have have dealt with, with China over the years as well. The challenge that China had in the early stages of setting up uh, CPEC in Pakistan was that it was seen as a project closely associated with Nawaz Sharif, the previous prime minister, and his party, the PM. MLN. And the PTI and, and Imran Khan took quite publicly critical stances of uh, the route of CPEC, where it was passing through Pakistan, the transparency of the projects, and had a number of other criticisms, a number of them relatively fair criticisms. And of course, you had Xi Jinping's visit to Pakistan and visits from a Chinese party secretary take place only about once every 10 years um, had to be delayed by several months because Imran Khan was in the capital with the capital locked down um, protesting against Nawaz Sharif and election fraud. Now, um, China had supported Nawaz Sharif's party for, for quite some time. Uh, why did that change? Uh, was it because the army had sort of turned against him or? So China's view has been to have good relations with all the political parties in mm. in, in in Pakistan. There's gradations within it, um, but there isn't a kind of anti-China party, even even the religious parties as well. I mean, there's there's a fairly strong consensus in Pakistan among the political elites that um, a good relationship with China is essential to Pakistan's security, and no one really rocks the boat on that too much. But the question is, within those parameters, what kind of room for maneuver is there, and what room for criticism is there? And China kind of has preference within that. The PPP, Benazir Bhutto's party, Zadari's party, China tended to see as a, a somewhat more pro-Western. They liked the PMN and it was somewhat more kind of pro-business. The PTI in its early phase was a sort of non-dynastic party looking to kind of break the stranglehold on Pakistani politics that the PMLN and, and the PPP had with a big anti-corruption mandate. Right. The party now, that's the, the, the version that has just won the election, doesn't quite look like that doesn't look like the version that stood in the in in the previous elections in in, in 2013. Well, how um, would you characterize it? So now? first of all, there have been more compromises made in terms of pulling in the old guard of Pakistani politics. It's it's less kind of insurgent in its its qualities. Secondly, the army backed them. There was no question. The PMLN would there was a fair chance that the PMLN would still have won the elections if you hadn't seen the maneuverings against Nawaz Sharif that played out um, over the previous year. Um, so uh, you have a more kind of firmly army-backed party and uh, I think a party that looks less different from the kind of mold-breaking version of the party that you had uh, before. Um, And so I I think from a Chinese perspective, uh, it's still a bit of an unknown force. The PTI in the country, it's held power in one of the major provinces, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, which which borders on on the tribal areas of, of Pakistan. And the experience there was not necessarily great for China, both in terms of, again, the kinds of 
criticisms and lack of enthusiasm for for, for CPEC, um, particularly in the early stages. Um, and I, I think just less willingness to kind of take up the financial offers that China was dangling to virtually anyone in Pakistan who was who was willing to take them up. So I think there are some reservations there. There are some. I, I think it, it's not necessarily that they see the PTI or Imran Khan as a problem as such. He's just more of an unknown quantity. They haven't been tested in national office before. They don't know what their economic, um, how how effective they're going to be as economic managers. So I think for the moment, um, there's a degree of reserving judgment. And, mm. and yes, they had they had hoped that going back uh, 18 months or so, certainly that the PMLN would would stay in power. And and one of the reasons, of, of course, is every time a government changes office, when there've been major Belt and Road projects, there's a lot of dirty uh, laundry air. Oh, you're um, right. uh, and they're somewhat concerned that the same thing will happen with the PTI as well, whereas I think it would all have been kept off. Um, can you talk a little bit about the personality of Imran Khan? Because I, I'm not sure if uh, American or European listeners appreciate the sport of cricket in, in the Commonwealth, and particularly <laughs> in South Asia. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is like the most famous American football star or soccer star being the leader of the country, right? Right. And what's distinctive as, as well is really this a certain amount of hope placed in him on the part of, I mean, really a lot of ordinary Pakistanis that it would uh, break the old model of how Pakistani politics was conducted. All of the figures that you see in Pakistani politics are people whose fathers and fathers' fathers and uncles and essentially have have controlled their parties and controlled Pakistani politics for uh, for, for decades. In a number of cases, they they have their sort of large feudal estates in various parts of the country as well. Imran Khan appealed to a kind of lower middle class urban Pakistani who I, I think was looking for a way to break through what is a really kind of ossified political system. And certainly his previous standing as a cricket star helped play into this, but he also took very critical positions on corruption questions. He's taken very critical positions on the relationship with the United States. He's taken some somewhat controversial positions on dealings with the Pakistani Taliban, uh, though this has kind of somewhat receded in, in recent years. So at the same time, there was a sort of Imran Khan 1.0 version that looked as if it, it was potentially going to really change the political system in Pakistan. What you have at the moment looks still a little bit more familiar, perhaps. It, it became clear that you couldn't win an election just by looking for a mandate of, of this sort. You needed to have the old feudal politicians somewhat involved to ensure that they turn people out in their constituencies as well. So I think he takes office somewhat more compromised, both by the dealings with the armies and and with the dealings with uh, various of the groups that he's needed to achieve office. So now that he is in office, has his posture toward China shifted? Has his rhetoric about CPEC shifted at all the way it does, say, for many American presidents between the campaign trail and the actual level office? So, I mean, in the election itself, he he didn't take particularly critical stances on on China. A lot of the the strong language on 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 these things came in the early stages when CPEC was 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 being set up. I see. Uh, the Chinese embassy in Islamabad actually issued a sort of unusual statement in the first year or so of, of uh, when all of this was playing out, hoping that a political consensus could be forged. It was really directed at the PTI. And they've worked the PTI quite hard since then, trying to persuade them um, effectively that 
we we can offer the same thing to you as we could to anyone else. Mm. If you want us to build boondoggle projects in your constituency that you can show your constituents by the time of the next elections um, are a great success, we can do that for you too. <laughs> Why miss out on this gravy train? And so I, I think they've they've attempted to, to to win them over. And if if you look at the speeches that Imran Khan has has made since then, they've been very kind of careful about China in, in, in terms of all the sort of nice relationship management language. The PTI put out a Chinese language tweet. Oh. Imran Khan talked about the lessons to be learnt from China and the Chinese model, which he's which he has talked about in, mm. in, in the past as well. Largely kind of grand sweet things about lifting people out of poverty rather than any sense that one should introduce special economic zones in, in Pakistan, which is actually a particular point of contention over uh, over CPEC. But the mood music around it has been has been good. And we will see uh, it's, it's been typical for a Pakistani prime minister to make uh, or, or president, depending on how the system works, to make their first overseas trip to China. Right. Um, and that will be that will be a good test. After each of the previous elections, that has proved to be a kind of a, a crux moment for what the relationship looks like in the in the few years afterwards. Hmm. Nawaz Sharif had a very good trip, very well prepared. Are there, are there dates now? For for Imran Khan's visit, uh, not that I'm okay. I, I, I'm 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 aware of. He's only just formally taken power, and his predecessor, Nawaz predecessor Zadari, had a terrible first trip to to Beijing, which he also blotted his copybook by mm. paying a couple of other trips elsewhere in the Gulf to the UK and elsewhere, uh, even before he went to China. They claimed that they were unofficial, um, but these things are kind of tone setting for for the Chinese. And I, but more immediate issues lurk with the uh, with CPEC and the IMF loan, where the Chinese have already, after the election, stepped in to provide another $2 billion worth of of financing. So they're already helping. And are they worried, uh, Andrew, are they worried about his management of the money, his management of the the country's economy? The big question for Pakistan has been, can they get away without going back to the IMF? Will other financiers come in to bail them out? And and those would be Gulf states or or, or banks, uh, or Chinese banks. And there was kind of a I think there's still in some points in Pakistan been a hope that they can avoid having to go through yet another IMF program. My sense is mm-hmm. that although the Chinese have been willing to provide short term financing to help them through their balance of payments crisis, they're not willing to go to the kind of 10, 11, 12 billion dollars of financing that would basically be the size of an IMF package. And they in some respects probably quite like Pakistan as they have in the past to have to go through an IMF program, because I'm not sure that they necessarily want to be in the position of pushing the Pakistanis around on some of these economic reform issues. Um, I think they'd rather have the IMF uh, do that for them. And I certainly think with this government, they don't yet have enough confidence to be able to say uh, that they'd be really willing to take the sort of risks that would be involved in in a package of that scale. If they do so, I don't think it will be for economic and financial reasons. It would be a purely political choice that they, for whatever reason, and there, there are some reasons why they might decide that an IMF package is embarrassing or uncomfortable. Um, but I think the trade-off at the moment, it, it still makes more sense for, uh, for, for China to encourage the Pakistanis to take Take up an IMF program, uh, even if they'll, uh, you know, help them out for another month or so. Well, let's turn now and focus on the CPEC. I think there are probably a few of our listeners, at least out there, who aren't super familiar with it. Maybe you could lay out what some of its key projects are and sure. what so, its, its chief goals are. Sure. I think so, most people yeah, probably know so, about what our so, I mean, port, but. By way of very brief background, um, 
the China-Pakistan economic relationship was incredibly minimal, despite the security relationship being extremely close, the security relationship pretty much exhausted what was being transacted between the, the two sides. They have an FTA, and uh, but uh, the, the level of investment taking place in Pakistan uh, before uh, CPAC and the Belt and Road uh, was, was extremely minimal. So this, the establishment of, of this new uh, initiative was kind of a landmark in the relationship. And the striking thing about it as well was that when you look around the Belt and Road, Pakistan is one of the only places where you have this really comprehensive package that seems to fulfill kind of all the nominal aspirations of what the Belt and Road is supposed to be about. You have this huge array of different projects, about 75% of them in the first phase were supposed to be energy projects, the rest of them are, uh, there's some road construction, there's Guadal port itself, there's some fiber optic cables. But it was really China stepping in when the previous government took office uh, as well to say, we will help fix your energy crisis, first of all, we will help fix your uh, infrastructure deficiencies. Um, and if all of this works, we'll move ahead into a kind of broader package of industrial cooperation and, and other areas of cooperation, agriculture, almost anything imaginable when you look at the long term plan. Um, it runs to 2030 in the planning. In the numbers that have been kicked around vary a lot. One often hears the number of $46 billion in, in the press. I think that's the size of all the different projects that were nominally in some stage of negotiation between the two sides. The Chinese tend to put out more conservative numbers that rely on the projects that are actually underway on the ground, and that's about $19, $20 billion. Um, Gwadar is, mm. uh, is, is kind of symbolically important in CPEC. Um, naturally, people look at it given the strategic sensitivity around the, the project, the fact they were willing to put it in CPEC and have that attached to this does have some meaning. But in the overall scheme of things, it's, it's relatively modest in terms of the things that they're actually looking to do with, with Guadar in the, in, in the first couple of years. I think CPEC is, because it's got the word corridor in it, it's often also imagined as this kind of transmission line of goods and energy and things going between Xinjiang and, and the Indian Ocean. In practice, there's very little of that envisaged. Most of it is a kind of diffuse package of of investments around Pakistan. There's very little that's new in terms of cross-border infrastructure projects. There's no pipeline envisaged. There's no railway line envisaged. This is largely uh, an investment package for for the country as, as a whole. That's a very helpful explanation because the corridor certainly does mislead one into the idea that it's a, a tr- primarily a transportation plan. Um, yeah. But uh, could we talk about now the extent to which CPEC may have been a contributing factor to Pakistan's current economic distress, its balance of payments problem. Um, What is the more common narrative that one hears about this? Is uh, Pakistan perceived to be a victim of debt trap diplomacy? Yes. So as with other instances of debt trap diplomacy, I certainly don't think China was setting out to get Pakistan into debt to then take advantage of them. I think even less so if one could ever make the argument in in other cases that this was what China was looking to do. I think it's clearly even less true in the case of, of Pakistan, given the the relationship that exists between the, the, the two sides. Um, this would offer more liabilities than potential opportunities for, for China. Pakistan is willing to do not anything that China wants, but quite a lot of what China wants already. There isn't much benefit to China from asking them to then hand over land, even this question of military bases, where I'm, I'm somewhat sceptical that China actually wants to establish a military base in Pakistan. I think it may do 
do in a number of other uh, places. But in the case of Pakistan, it has reliable access to whatever Pakistani military facilities it wants without having to go through the kind of alarm bell ringing process of establishing a, a formal China-specific military base. But I think... It is certainly the case that over the long term, there have been debts added to the Pakistani government, um, but not, I mean, there, there is a narrow debt question, which is kind of loans from the Chinese government to the Pakistani government. Mm-hmm. Um, the other issue, though, is Pac- the Pakistani government has assumed a number of liabilities. A lot of the money going into CPEC is Chinese financing institutions lending to Chinese companies operating in Pakistan and the Pakistani government providing guarantees about the rate of return that that they will achieve largely through uh, electricity pricing and and, right. and such things. So this doesn't formally show up as a Pakistani as debt, debt um, but of course it, it's a set of liabilities that the Pakistanis have in a sector that has been extremely troublesome for for Pakistan in the past. So some of the debt numbers that you see kicking around don't necessarily include all of these uh, numbers as well. But I think there's still a d- depending on how you count that piece of the debt. I think there's still a reasonable argument both that the debt is uh, manageable and that if it comes down to it, the Chinese will be quite comfortable renegotiating the the, the terms if, if need be. Again, because the, they have other equities in this relationship. This is uh, this is a politically and security driven relationship. They don't necessarily need to get some great economic return. I was speaking of which, Andrew. Sorry to interrupt, but speaking of no. which, you, you you've talked about the CPEC as a golden thread that ties together or tries to tie together China's new approach to India and Pakistan. Um, so first, what is Beijing's current strategy in managing this triangular relationship? And what role does CPEC play? And how has this approach been received in both New Delhi and in Islamabad? Sure. Just briefly to round off on the balance of payments issue, the problem is less a debt problem and more of a balance of payments problem that Pakistan now has. Um, I don't think CPEC has, has been a huge contributory factor in the balance of payments program uh, problem that Pakistan faces. It's had long-standing balance of payments um, issues. This is why it keeps having to go through IMF programs. It's largely problems with Pakistan's export sector. Um, but the imports of CPEC materials and, and, and things have been a contributory factor, which is another reason I think the Chinese have been willing Willing to help, be willing to be helpful to help Pakistan navigate some of these problems. Um, I I don't think you can attribute most of of the cause of of, of Pakistan's long running issues in in this area to uh, to to CPEC though. I'm I, I'm absolutely sure China will be blamed for this. Um, and I think they already are being and they they already are being blamed for it. Um, and and I think they they have a, a modest level of culpability, but uh, not not the preponderant level. Um, on CPEC as as a sort of thread for the relationship, I think. I think the hope on China's part had been twofold. One, that this would sort of address a lot of the outstanding concerns that they had about issues in Pakistan that were sort of inhibiting the relationship fulfilling its potential promise. China has, of course, concerns about the direction in which Pakistani society has been headed, performance of the economy, uh, rising militancy, all of these sorts of things that plenty of others, including in Pakistan, have have been worried about uh, too. CPEC, I think, for uh, uh, for, for some of its architects on the Chinese side was supposed to help deal with this. It would be job generating, it would be stabilizing, it would help the Pakistani economy take off in ways that would uh, not only help to deal with internal militancy issues, um, but would to some extent act as a sort of restraining force on Pakistan, because it would have more stake in uh, securing its economic future rather than just some of the kind of classic military security uh, interests that it had in its, its region. And that's what's good for India too. 
And the argument that that China uh, had been making to India was that India would benefit from this. That right. India would uh, benefit from a more stable neighbor. Uh, there's this quote from Li Keqiang. Um, kind of rendered in the Indian press in a meeting with Modi um, in which he talks about weaning the populace from fundamentalism um, as one of the aims of CPEC. And so there was a pitch to India that was, look, this isn't what the China-Pakistan relationship looked looked to be before. Yes, it was previously about military and security ties, but this is about helping to stabilize the country. It's about helping to deal with Pakistan's economy. This will be good for you. The Indians did not buy this. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the Indians viewed it through the same prism that they have seen the China-Pakistan relationship through for decades and the correct prism to analyze it through for for decades, which was this is ultimately a way of bolstering Pakistan um, as a security actor um, and emboldening Pakistan. And to a certain extent, I mean, China did part of CPEC bolstering Pakistan's economy was from China's perspective also about ensuring that the military were able to sustain their budgets and things. I don't think this was absent from the calculations that that China had. But India also had concerns about, again, going back to the concept of the corridor, a sense that this was a route going through disputed territory in Kashmir. And so not only did this lead to tensions over CPEC itself, but this has still been one of the crucial reasons that India has been unwilling to uh, participate in the Belt and Road as a whole, um, was unwilling to participate in the Belt and Road Forum. um, And India has been consistently sceptical about what CPEC actually amounts to. And the problem at the moment is because of the economic problems that that, that China is is facing in in, in Pakistan, um, and some of the areas of CPEC have have moved ahead quite actively on the ground. I think 19 to 20 billion dollars is actually quite a significant sum. I think if you'd assessed it in the early days, you'd have you'd have said that that was that was pretty good going. But this was really stage one. I mean, they were supposed to do the energy projects, then they were supposed to move ahead with industrial cooperation. The industrial cooperation has largely been stalled. Um, And that's because Pakistani businesses are skeptical about it. Um, it involves much more broad-based cooperation than kind of sticking in a power plant somewhere. And I think this is where China is starting to run into more problems. And of course, that then goes back to the balance of payments issues. One of the reasons that the industrial cooperation was supposed to be helpful was it would also lay the groundwork for Pakistan's export sector, which will help the balance of payments situation in turn. The concern is that if the other phases of CPEC don't work, then the grander ambitions for the project don't work. If the grander ambitions for the project don't work, then the relationship may well end up looking more like it did until a few years ago. That is a heavily security-centric relationship. And if that's the case, there is equally the possibility that China will have to go back to approaching uh, the balance of power issues in South Asia the way that it did before, um, which is rather than being able to say to India, our deepened relationship now has a different meaning, the relationship with Pakistan, uh, they have to essentially face up to the fact that they have to balance Indian sensitivities when it comes to some of these areas of deepening security cooperation with with, with Pakistan. Um, and to some extent, that's already playing out in the kind of new attempts to find a modus vivendi between China and India, mm. um, where in a few instances, China has regressed to a situation where it's more willing to negotiate on issues of how much diplomatic protection it provides to Pakistan um, over issues of terrorism and some of these issues, which is what you saw uh, taking place in, 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 in the past, because of course, China has um, a number of stakes in the relationship with India as well. Right. Andrew, speaking of such things, I have a two-part question. First of all, I mean, do you have a good sense of what ordinary Pakistanis feel about CPEC or China's foreign direct investment as a whole? And secondly, and somehow related, is 
you know, the province where Gwadar is located, Baluchistan, has historically been bogged down by, you know, constant conflict. I, I remember when I was riding around uh, Pakistan on a bicycle in the late 90s, I spent some time in the uh, tribal areas on the border with Afghanistan with, you know, the most dangerous people I've ever met in my life, opium-dealing gun runners. And they warned <laughs> me against going to Baluchistan. They said it was too dangerous. <laughs> so... Um, I, you know, and there have been security incidents, kidnappings and sort of terrorist incidents. So uh, is there a danger that local resentment, you know, either in the whole country or in a place like Baluchistan, could result in a serious security incident of some kind where China would feel that it may be compelled to send troops or, you know, at least the relationship would undergo some kind of fundamental shift? Yeah, China doesn't really have any experience in kind of uh, running overseas security operations, right? I mean, this is going to be, this is going to be completely unfamiliar territory to, for them. So, I mean, if you look at um, the security situation for for Chinese in Pakistan, uh, there was a very bad period, which was the early two thousands into about two thousand and seven. There were attacks in which Chinese engineers were killed kidnapped. And the earliest attacks took place in Baluchistan. I mean, that was the point in which it became clear to China that the economic interests that it had in the country were going to be seen uh, as, uh, and the China-Pakistan relationship itself would be seen as a potential target for militant groups to put pressure on the Pakistani government. It was in lots of respects more effective to do that, to hit Chinese targets, uh, which were far more sensitive than hitting a Pakistani government target, where no one would ever find out about it in most cases in, in, in Baluchistan. So this goes back some way. The the Baluchistan issue uh, come on to. I think it's a very it's a unique case. The initial question uh, from from Jeremy was kind of attitudes as a whole, and I I think that's that's really that's really going to be the critical question for CPEC in the next few years because one of the reasons that. China has enjoyed this kind of strong political consensus has actually also been because, um, yes, public opinion has been managed on China, but public opinion has genuinely been supportive of China and supportive of the relationship. So there's been no particular benefit to political figures in Pakistan looking to whip up critical um, views of, 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 of China. There's not been very much space for this. Mm. Um, uh, and I mean, of course, the army would have tried to squash it if, 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 if anyone had. Um, the question now with CPEC is, um, views are much more mixed. Um, certainly, I think China benefits from a degree of goodwill because of the relationship that, that the two sides have had for a long time. They have a long way to fall um, in this respect. But there's a lot of skepticism about uh, almost all the obvious issues that everyone has with the Belt and Road. Presence of Chinese companies, presence of Chinese workers, debt loads, whether Pakistani companies and businesses will be excluded. Lack um, of skills transfer. Lack of skills transfer. Whether, um, whether the Chinese do have designs on Pakistani land, what it means if the Chinese start getting involved in agriculture, all of the kind of obvious things that anyone would react to if there was a very broad-based involvement from a country that has not been kind of at a in a, in a deep way Way involved in Pakistan. It's, it's been involved as a kind of security backdrop security element. provider. Um, but you don't see and you're not culturally absorbed with China when you're in, in, in Pakistan. This is a, an unfamiliar development that's taking place. And it's taking place quite comprehensively a, across the country as a result of CPEC. There's been limited polling done. I'm not sure on the methodological soundness of the polls that I've, I've looked at in Pakistan. But it's been a pretty mixed bag on, on CPEC. There have been mm. quite critical views, Expressed just nothing very surprising, but 
I think the question is going to be whether this exerts a drag on broader views on, on China. I would be very surprised if it doesn't. And as a result, of course, it creates a more permissive environment for tensions that various other groups might have with the Chinese. Speaking of which, uh, I mean, what, what explains Pakistan's silence on the issue of the Uyghurs? Uh, I mean, not only have they not made much noise of the extensive reports over the last year of these, you know, incidents of serious ethnic repression, including the so-called re-education camps, uh, but they've even, you know, done Beijing's bidding, in, in a sense, of pushing the Uyghurs uh, who were in Waziristan into Afghanistan. Yeah, that's yeah, that's right. So the the view that has been taken on the Pakistani side at a political level has been certainly in light of the relationship we have with China, the Uyghur issue should be deprioritized. And that's something that's been pushed out across the board. In Hussein Haqqani's, one of Hussein Haqqani's books, he wrote about his time when he was in Jamaat-e-Islami um, as, a, as a young man. And, you know, even for the religious parties, they were told the liberation of Muslims everywhere is a priority. Um, but in China, it should be kind of deprioritized. Huh. Um, and I think that has that has tended to uh, infuse the approach that's been taken. But it, I mean, I, I think there's always a question about the Uyghurs standing in, in various other Muslim communities around the world. And, and I think Pakistan is not an environment in which, I mean, there is an established Uyghur community in, in Pakistan, relatively small, um, mostly in Rawalpindi, but it's not a community that has tended to elicit the same sort of sympathies as certain other um, popular causes. But it, it goes beyond that. I mean, if you go back and look at even, uh, even on the kind of militant group's side, you look at the statements that bin Laden was making in the late 90s um, about China and Xinjiang, uh, you get the same sort of language that you hear if you go to talk to some of the Pakistani religious parties now. Bombs in Xinjiang are CIA or Indian plots designed to create divisions between powers that should otherwise be fighting against the US enemy and, and this sort of stuff. There's still a lot of conspiracy theorizing that goes on around this as well that one hears, one hears today on this. So wow. I think there's a lot to break through. Given the scale of what's taking place in Xinjiang at the moment, I do wonder whether you will start to reach to a stage where this does break through in a different way. But there's been no reason for it to to do so so far. Um, it's only been when China's been more deeply involved in in Pakistani economy, Pakistani security issues in the country that you've started to see any of the groups really react to China. You got a bit more after 2009. You got statements from certain groups right. at that point when it had that level of kind of public salience, and you could, I think, in theory, right. the after, yeah, after, after July and ex- the riots exactly. In the room, so um, right. But I mean, the groups that have targeted. China, for the most part, including the the Baluch groups, have tended to be groups that are really targeting the Pakistani government, Pakistani Taliban, the Baluch groups. Um, and I mean, going back to Jeremy's original question, the Chinese are kind of ready for this now. The protection that's been put in place by the Pakistanis has actually largely been effective over the last decade. You haven't seen, there was a period in which Pakistan was the most dangerous place to be a Chinese worker in the world um, in terms of the number of kidnappings and killings. That's no longer the case. The protection mechanisms have, for the most most part been effective. There have been a couple of injuries of, of people involved in economic projects. There have been Chinese killed in Pakistan, but they've been, uh, or kidnapped, but they've been kind of solo operators. There was someone riding a bicycle from Xinjiang to Iran who got picked up, this this sort of thing. But most of the people operating on formal projects, the protection's actually been relatively good. I think if there is a major attack on the Chinese in, in Pakistan, if the Chinese think the Pakistanis have done enough to protect them, I think they, they're resilient against a certain number of 
of, of, of these attacks. If it looks as if there's a broader security deterioration in, in the country, of course, or if it looks as if the Pakistanis can't protect uh, Chinese workers in the country anymore, then a lot of the best... Then all bets are off. Right, right, right. Andrew Small, this has been absolutely terrific. Uh, I've learned a, a ton. I'm sure Jeremy feels the same way. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Before we pack up here, though, let's do our recommendations segment. But first, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's premium access service to enjoy extra content, including bonus stories and early ad-free access to this podcast. Seneca is the flagship podcast and expanding network of podcasts that now include the Tyson Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, and the New Voices podcast. We're very excited to be adding more shows this month. Now, uh, on to recommendations. Jeremy, what do you have for us this week? I uh, stumbled across this very interesting app and website uh, through a Bloomberg report on it. It's called What Three Words, and it's a startup. And what they've done is they've divided the entire globe into a grid of 57 trillion squares. Each square is three meters by three meters. And each of these squares is assigned a three-word address. And the words are just taken from a database of English language with, uh, you know, swear words removed and stuff. So they're kind of random. Um, so, for example, you know, around Tiananmen Gate is improving shrimps legal. And that takes you to that exact three by three meter square. Now, of course, China being China with the weird thing they do to the GPS, the GPS shift, it doesn't work perfectly in China, but it seems to work very accurately in the United States. And it's being used in mostly uh, in developing countries so far by NGOs and uh, places like Cote d'Ivoire, Djibouti and Nigeria, where many people don't live in a house with a formal street address. Uh, and this system allows you to make very accurate deliveries, even when there isn't a formalized postal system. Oh, it's wow. a lot of fun to play around with. Anyway, what3words.com is the website. I'll check it out. I mean, I'm curious where I am right now. <laughs> Great. Uh, Andrew, what do you have for um, us? Okay, so I have the, there are two uh, pieces. Um, one, a but both really looking at the one of, one of the questions you were talking about on your session with. Uh, Chas Freeman um, the other week on this question of trade and investment decoupling between China and the United States and the kind of uh, current unraveling between the two sides. And there were a couple of pieces that I, I thought kind of merited more attention than they, um, they've, they've, they've sometimes had, um, effectively looking at the alternative options for how one might go about doing this. Um, uh, one is... Um, uh, Dan Rosen's piece is a trade war the only option from uh, foreign affairs in 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 March. Um, the second is um, Jennifer Hillman's testimony at the U.S.-China Commission um, on U.S. tools to address Chinese market distortions. And I think the striking thing about both of of them is that they're they're, they're both I think have have long histories with 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 China. Um, sure. uh, Jennifer was on the the Appalachian um, uh, body of the WTO. Um, uh, Helped to negotiate China's WTO entry, uh, but both of them looking very seriously at the options for how, uh, in Dan's case, one might negotiate jointly managed disengagement of the two economies. Um, and on Jennifer's part, effectively, how you would test the WTO with a China case almost to the point of destruction. Um, and I think that if, if you actually watch her testimony as well and the exchanges um, with, with with the commissioners on on the subject, it's the best um, discussion that I've seen on the subject as well of. 
how the US might work with uh, other major economies um, on, on, on this issue as well and the challenges that are going to be involved in that. But I think both looking for alternatives to the war-orientated uh, version of how this all plays out. And, and there's video of the testimony? Yeah, there's a very good video of, 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 of the USCC testimony on their, on their website. Um, okay, great. Oh, terrific. You'll have to provide us with those links, sure. and um, I'll definitely want to check that out. That, that's fascinating. Uh, so I've just started reading a book called Command and Control by Eric Schlosser uh, about the incredibly frightening Damascus incident, uh, which I hadn't really heard much about. Um, it's a massive fuel leak at a Titan II missile silo in Arkansas in the early 1980s. It really nearly brought on Armageddon. Um, and, and there are also, this book is full of of hair-raising nuclear near misses that the U.S. has had. Uh, it's relevant, I suppose, because, you know, it's, if, if we are screwing up this often, you know, this advanced industrialized country, uh, just think about what some of the other nuclear states around the world, i.e. Pakistan, uh, are doing. I'm only a few chapters in, but it's, it's pretty riveting right now. Uh, great book. Uh, Andrew, thanks once again. Oh, thank you. Oh, it's a real pleasure. And Jeremy, man, great talking to you as always. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Kaiser. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn and edited by me. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Exciting City Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz, China, and New Voices. More shows coming soon. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.